I'm Gabriel Walker, the author of Antarctica. And one of the reasons I was so fascinated by the continent is that it's weird and that it officially belongs to nobody. So it's huge. It's the size of Europe or continental uh, USA. And yet humans have never lived there and nobody owns it. Um, and quite a few countries have actually made a claim on parts of it. And all of the claims are like, like pieces of a, of a cake and they all, they all meet in the middle at the South Pole. But those claims are all officially on hold because just about 50 years ago, um, a whole bunch of countries got together and put together this Antarctic Treaty. And the treaty says you cannot use the continent to do anything military. You can't use the continent to do anything for commercial purposes. The only, if you like, excuse you can have to be down there is to do science. And now 49 different countries have signed up to that treaty. You can't exploit for minerals, you can't look for oil, you have to protect the species. There's all sorts of rules associated with it. But that treaty means that this place still officially belongs to nobody. And various different countries have tried different ways to, to uh, suggest their claim, even though they're not allowed to, to promote it in any way officially. And so, for example, uh, the Argentinians sent pregnant women to Antarctica to have their babies there so they could officially be Antarctican citizens and these guys are now in their 20s and they have passports that say Argentinian Antarctican on them and the Chileans started to do that as well so there, there have been more than a dozen people actually born in Antarctica and, and even now the Argentinians and the Chileans are two of the few who actually send children down there with their parents to the scientific bases and it's really weird when you go in there because you see schools and you see tiny little chairs and tables and it's, it's strange because everywhere else you go in Antarctica there's no sign of children officially adults only for the for the continent and uh, and also no other animals nothing is allowed to be brought in from the outside the only alien species that's allowed to go in is humans and even dogs aren't allowed there anymore and you can't you can't take plants or flowers with you and and um it's kind of funny apparently once there was a snail that arrived on some lettuce that had come in from the outside and uh, to be eaten and the snail was discovered by the chefs and they kept it as a pet for several weeks apparently before it was discovered and summarily destroyed because you're not allowed to have alien species here in Antarctica to, to damage the environment and pollute the, uh, the pristine nature of it. But some of the other ways that you can kind of stake a claim without staking a claim are really quite clever. The Americans have never made an official claim even though they have the best infrastructure, they have the best uh, facilities and logistics, they have planes and helicopters and vehicles that can take you all over the entire continent, but they've never made a claim. But what they did do is they built a base at the South Pole. Now there's perfectly good scientific reasons to be at the South Pole, they do some amazing science there, but also if you think about it, every single claim is a wedge and they all meet at the South Pole. So if you want to have a finger in everyone else's piece of pie, that's the perfect place to put yourself a base. So that's the kind of uh, the politicking, if you like, that still goes on on the continent. But, but really, what's striking about it, given all of that, is, is both the level of cooperation you can get there and, and, and the extraordinary science that people have discovered. So in a way, the cooperation is really striking. It's, um, you, you, have, you even have one base that is jointly run by two completely sovereign nations, France and Italy. And they run it completely jointly. They own it completely uh, together, and it seems to work beautifully. They even they don't many of them don't even speak each other's language, but somehow it still works. And if anyone anywhere on the continent gets sick, 
immediately all the bases, it doesn't matter what nationality you are, and it doesn't matter whether your, your home nations are at war, or if anyone gets sick, everyone pitches in. So it's almost as if what matters first and foremost is that you're Antarctic and that you're human. It doesn't matter if you're Argentinian or British in the Falklands War, it doesn't matter if you're French or American during all the fuss about Iraq, it, it doesn't matter. So there is this extraordinary level of cooperation there. But the thing that I think is most extraordinary is that some people kind of sniff, they say the science is just an excuse. You want to have a placeholder there, you want to have a base there, so you have to do science and you have to be doing science. But in fact, it turns out that to get down there, you have to go through so many hoops that only the very best scientists can go there and they have to have the very best ideas and projects. And then on top of that, it also turns out, luckily for us, this is a continent that's amazingly rich in ideas and in and, and, and facts and in things that we can discover, not just about Antarctica, but about other parts of the world and even the universe. So scientists there, they study the penguins and they study the seals, of course, and they found out all sorts of extraordinary things about how they can survive in such a harsh environment. But they've also gone into the interior and they've found life in the most amazing places. They've, they found they can break open rock with a hammer and open it and inside it there's living things. They can find life you know, buried between lakes that are completely, buried beneath lakes that are completely covered in ice where there's no light and there ought not to be life and they still find living things there. And they've also found uh, uh, meteorites that rocks from space, pieces of Mars that have been crashed off from Mars in a, in a collision hundreds of millions of years ago, billions of years ago in some case, and then, then have crashed and banged around the universe and have finally landed on the ice in Antarctica. And you can hold a piece of Mars in your hand. The very first time anyone realised that pieces of Mars came to us was because of a rock that was found in Antarctica. Pieces of the moon, pieces of the asteroid belt are all there as well. And then there are people studying these amazing valleys that are, are very rare parts of Antarctica that don't have ice covering them. They're kind of they're almost like in an ice shadow. And there's one amazing place I went to called Beacon Valley, which is the valley that time forgot. It hasn't rained there for 15 million years and nothing changes. There's a, a rockfall that if you're a geologist, you look at a rockfall and you can say, that's very old or that's very fresh. And the fresh ones have kind of jagged rocks and they haven't moved much and they're all very neat and tidy. And the older ones have been kind of disrupted by the wind or the water. And, and the guy I went down there with, he pointed to a rockfall and said, go on, how old do you think that is? And it looked really fresh. So I said, I don't know, five years, 10 years. He said, we've dated it, it's a million years old. So this is a place where nothing changes. It's the most patient, place in the world. And then also in, in the interior at the South Pole, they study uh, these telescopes to look at the, the outer parts of the universe, the, the, the massive black hole at the centre of the galaxy that's about to maybe turn on and turn into a voracious kind of gobbling monster. Or They even look out to the very farthest parts of the universe, to the origins, to the Big Bang, looking through a special window in space that you can only get to by being at the South Pole. And so there's all sorts of fantastic kind of spacey, alien, weird, wonderful science that's come out of it. But then Antarctica also has things to tell us about ourselves and about home. So some of the science, for example, um, there's, there's uh, these amazing ice cores that have been drilled down in the ice. And that's, I, th I think, I still can't believe this is true, but it, it really is. So the snow falls, and as it falls, it falls in layers over the years, and it traps little bits of air, and that gets squeezed and turned into ice, and more snow falls on top of it. And if you drill down into the ice, which is in some places three and a half kilometres thick, 
If you go right down, all the way down to the bottom, you can pull out pieces of air that are nearly a million years old and you can sniff them. And that's air that has never been breathed by humans before. So you actually have a physical record of exactly what our atmosphere has been like for nearly a million years just from Antarctica. And that tells us that we're changing our atmosphere and we're changing it very drastically, more drastically than it's changed in the last million years. And we're changing it because we're burning coal, oil and gas and putting fossil fuels into the air. And you can trace that process exactly looking through this incredible ice record. So Antarctica can tell us that we've, you know, the past changed this way and that way a little bit more, a little bit less, and suddenly we've been doing something now. We've put more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere in the last century than has been in it for nearly a million years at least. And we can also tell from that ice core that when you put carbon dioxide in the air, it gets warmer. So that's one thing that Antarctica has to show us, but there's also something which I find utterly fabulous, which is we've begun to realize there's this cold, hard, forbidding exterior of this ice. But if you drill down underneath it, you find a completely different place. You find a place that's actually quite wet. So there are lakes under Antarctica, some of them huge, some of them smaller, but there are lakes all over the continent. And not just lakes, but there's wetlands, and there's rivers, and the water passes between them, and you can trace it, you can look on the surface, and some parts of the surface raise up or, or, or drop down as the water underneath it moves and squirts from one place to another, and you can follow it. And there's even, I love this, because of the pressure of the ice, the water behaves in weird ways underneath, so there's even uphill waterfalls. There are waterfalls where the water goes uphill because of the pressure of the ice. So underneath the ice is this incredibly dynamic, varied place. And that's worrying too for us because it's not just a dynamic place, it's also the scientists have begun to find evidence that the ice is actually melting. Antarctica is warming up, just like the whole world is warming up. And massive icebergs are breaking off the edges and massive ice shells are shattering. And the ice itself is, is, is moving faster and thinning and moving more quickly towards the sea. And all of this dynamic under ice world may be part of this. Antarctica may be much more vulnerable to melting than, than we'd ever realized. And that's something that's very much on scientists' mind at the moment. And that leads some people to think, well, maybe Antarctica's vulnerable, fragile, we need to protect it, we need to look after it. And, and I don't think that's really true. Because if there's one thing I've learned from all my trips to Antarctica, it's that it's not fragile, it's not vulnerable. It's very, very powerful. And one of the things I mean about that is that, you know, okay, the ice might melt, it might all go. But something else extraordinary that scientists have found in Antarctica is they found traces of past life, including dinosaurs. And dinosaurs used to live in Antarctica when it was on the South Pole. So it was sitting there where it is now, where it ought to be cold, and yet it was covered with ferns and plants and marshes, and it was a hot and steamy place. And it's been like that before, and it could be like that again. The thing that made the difference is in the time of the dinosaurs, Things started to get buried, wood started to get buried, sea creatures started to get buried, things that contained carbon in their bodies started to get buried deep below the ground in these marshes and these shallow seas. And when that happened, that was like sucking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and burying it deep. And all those trees and sea creatures, they turned into coal and oil and natural gas, buried very, very deeply. And as they were getting buried, that sucked carbon dioxide out of the air and made the world start to cool down. And as it cooled down, 
Antarctica stopped being a marshland and it stopped being steamy and it started to get cold. And the rest of the world took on the kind of climate that we have today. Now what we're doing now is we're digging down, back down, getting that coal, getting that oil and burning it and putting the carbon dioxide back in the atmosphere. And that means we're going back towards the kind of climate that we had when the dinosaurs were there. Now the question is, who should care about that? Because Antarctica doesn't care. It doesn't particularly mind whether it's covered in ice and beautiful, or covered in forests and beautiful, or covered in dinosaurs and beautiful. It's still beautiful. But if we go back to a place where Antarctica doesn't have any ice anymore, that means raising the sea levels, that means drowning our coastal cities, that means getting more intense storms, that means getting droughts in the centre of continents, it means not being able to grow the food that we need for the people that live on Earth. So, you know what, it's not really Antarctica that's vulnerable. It's humans who are vulnerable. And the continent is kind enough to warn us about it, if we're prepared to listen. <laughs>